You're listening to a Misfit Torah production. Misfit Torah is a platform for creative, out-of-the-box Jewish thinkers who deserve more of a platform than they've been given. If that sounds like something you like, follow us on social media. You can even support us on Patreon. Anyway, without further ado, your Misfit Torah production starts now. What happens when religion or religious scriptures or sacred text contradicts truth. What happens when you're looking at a religious text or religious instructions and you're saying, that's not true, whether it be scientifically not true or uh, logically not true or perhaps even morally not true, though that gets a little bit tricky. Uh, What do you do in that situation? Now, the typical answer people expect from a religious person is, we reject anything contradicting our religion. We don't care if this is true or not. We, you know, uh, will reject science in favor of religion. Of religion, we will reject, uh, you know, anything contradicting our religion, and only accept uh, anything. Only accept the things that our religion tells us to do because God is true, and you know everything else is false. Um, that I believe, though, is not only not necessarily how religious people react. Uh, I don't think that's ever how it's worked. I don't think that even the people who will tell you that we reject anything that contradicts the truth of religion, I don't think those people actually will uh, reject everything that contradicts religion. Um, The best way I've seen of putting how religion deals with truthful contradictions to its core texts or uh, ideas is in a book uh, by Moshe Halbertal uh, called People of the Book, where he talks about this thing uh, called charitable reading. Uh, So when you look at something that isn't, uh, you know, in concordance with religious texts, uh, you read it charitably. In other words, uh, you know, obviously that is what charitable reading means, yes. But uh, you come to it, you assume that both religion is true and the thing that I know is true is true. Now, that could go either of, it could go either of two ways. Either I'm assuming that because religion is true and because I know this is true, then it must be that the religious thing that I know is that I know is you know what it says in my religion uh, must be reinterpreted in light of what is true. That's the one you don't hear of so often. Um, I can't give any examples off the top of my head to you, but uh, you know, it's not you know I'm rejecting this because I don't think this this is true. It's that because I know that my religion is true. Because I know this is true, I have to reinterpret this in line with what I know is true. The other way, which people you know know more of, is because you know my religion is true, I have to assume that you know God knew better than I do. But it's not you know I'm rejecting this truth. I'm rejecting this other truth. It's uh, I'm holding off judgment because I assume that this religion is talking about something which is true. Uh, But the more interesting one for our purposes is the first one. In fact, I probably should have led with the second one instead of the first one. Uh, But, you know, all it says in my notes right now is Halbertal on charitable reading, because I've given this spiel a bunch of different times. Um, 
people don't exactly so what I'm saying is people don't exactly ha- understand how religious reinterpretation works. When you see people like saying, "Oh, you know, this isn't true anymore, so why don't you just like get rid of it or reinterpret it away?" Uh, it's not going. I'm not going to take this thing, which is obviously untrue, untrue, and interpret it away. It's I assume this is true, and I know this is true. I must interpret this in a way I know is true. So the way that religious people have, uh, and there's a lot of abstract concepts here, uh, and not a lot of specifics. I'm sorry for that, but the way that religious people have typically reacted to things which contradict our religion is not, you know, automatic rejection. It's, let's see, uh, could this be in line with uh, an interpretation of my religious text? Or is it so beyond the compare, beyond the normal reading of our religious text that I have to reject it in favor of my religious text? You know, I've been arguing for years that the internal you know, life and uh, the internal, you know, reading of texts in a religious community is much, much more complex than uh, people on the outside give it credit for. And that's part of the things that I want to talk about today. Um, So, hi, I'm Akiva Weisinger. This is the Who the Heck Is That Guy podcast, a presentation of the Misfit Torah podcast network. Eventually, it's going to be a network. Right now, it's just this podcast. Um, we're going to be exploring the world of medieval rationalist exegesis, medieval rationalists interpreting the Torah. Um, so in terms of the most important medieval rationalist uh, who you know in, uh, had a commentary on the Torah, um, while the Rambam has a lot to contribute, uh, he didn't actually write uh, Maimonides, for those who don't know who the Rambam is. Uh, he was, you know, obviously the uh, class of the medieval rationalists. He didn't write a classical biblical commentary. However, I do recommend using the index to the Maranavuchim, to the Guide to the Perplexed, as one. If you just look for, like, biblical references, you could put together what is kind of a commentary on the Torah, but we're going to be focusing most on the Ralbag, uh, or Gersonides, or Rabbi Levi ben Gershon. Okay? Uh, Gershon. Okay? Uh, the Ralbag, uh, as we're going to call him throughout this, uh, that is R-A-L-B-A-G, uh, short for Rabbi Levi ben Gershon, uh, was born 1288 and died 1344, or whereabouts. Um, we don't know that much about his life. I know that in this podcast, I've tried to present to you like what their personalities were like. Um, we're going to get a good read on his personality, but we don't know that much about his actual life. Uh, we know that he lived in Orange, which is now Avignon. Uh, I may be pronouncing Orange completely incorrectly, uh, which is, you know, France. Uh, we know that he was an accomplished Talmudist. We know that he, you know, learned Gemara and uh, knew Halakha. Uh, we also know that he never held a rabbinic post, and we also don't really have that much of his uh, Talmudic works, uh, despite the fact that contemporaries describe him as an outstanding Talmudist. Um, this, the fact that he never held a rabbinic post 
may possibly be due to his controversial views, which we'll get to. And he may have been a doctor uh, for his, uh, you know, income. Um, he was also an accomplished mathematician and astronomer. He's one of two uh, rabbis who have craters on the moon named after them. The other one is Ibn Ezra, as we have covered. Um, he uh, did some cool things with astronomy. Um, you know, one source that I have says that he was a you know outstanding if uncreative astronomer. And other sources say that like he discovered. Uh, he had the correct interstellar distances before anybody else did, and that he invented a tool that sailors used. Uh, I don't know that much about medieval astronomy, but uh, the Rabag was a accomplished astronomer. He was also an accomplished mathematician. Um, he's most famous for his philosophy. Uh, he was the most extreme of the neo-Aristotelian uh, Jewish philosophers. Uh, the Jewish philosophers who read Aristotle and tried to, uh, you know, uh, reconcile Aristotelian thought with Judaism. Uh, he was the most extreme in terms of accepting Aristotelianism. Um, has some really, really, like, non-accepted views that, like, uh, God does not know about, like, the particulars of human life, of what's going on on Earth. He only knows the generalities, which is in line with Aristotle, but not really in line with, like, you know, most of Jewish philosophy has some really out there views. I like to say there are people who say that the Rambam, uh, you know, hid his views in his books uh, and he was really much more radical than he uh, presents himself as because he was trying to hide his views from uh, people. These uh, from people, the people who believe this are called Maimonidean esotericists because, uh, you know, he made his own views esoteric in this view. I have a lot of problems with this view. Uh, I don't think, and we'll get to that when we deal with the Rambam, I don't think that the Rambam was the type of person who uh, would have done that. We'll get to that. Uh, but, you know, when I'm in a joking mood, I like to say that uh, Maimonidean esotericists believe that, you know, even though he presented himself as a from and out, uh, you know, upstanding Jew, really, and uh, you know, deep down, uh, the Rambam really held like the Rambam. That's how out there the Rambam's views are. Uh, his work, his philosophical work, is entitled Mechamos Hashem, uh, and one of the sources that I was looking at said that there's like an inside joke that uh, it really Mechamos Hashem means you know the battles of the Lord or the wars of the Lord. Uh, the joke, you know, Lord being God, obviously. Uh, the joke is that it really should be milchamot neged Hashem, or wars against God. Such, you know, such is the radicalism of the Rambam, which will play into his commentary. Um, he's probably most famous, though. Uh, I said he was most famous for his philosophy. That's uh, in some circles, but typically in, you know, uh, Orthodox Jewish circles, I would guess. He's most famous for his commentary on Tanakh. Um... Uh, and that's what we're dealing with today as we deal with uh, biblical commentators. Um, we're going to describe the structure and some of the main features of his commentary. Uh, I'm going to be dependent on a wonderful article by one Yitzhak Grossman, uh, the scholar Rabbi Levi, a study in rationalistic exegesis. It's in Chakira magazine. You can find it online. Uh, it says, as his bio, that uh, he learns in Lakewood. Uh, I love guys like that, the people who are li uh, who are like learning in Lakewood and, you know, are doing scholarly articles on the Royal Bog, who, you know, everybody in the Haredi community would be shocked if, if they knew what his views were. Um, 
Apparently, he now lear- learns in Silver Spring. Uh, I was told when I posted like a sc- screenshot, uh, a shot of my notes. Uh, it, it's a very, very good article. And uh, honestly, if you want to just skip the podcast and read this article, I won't, uh, you know, begrudge you for that. I happen to think I'm very entertaining. But you could basically get what we're trying to do by reading that article. Um, and, uh, yeah, let's start with the basic, the basics of the Rubog's commentary. Um, so the, he has a very interesting structure and of his commentary, one that I actually very much like, uh, because one thing that fresh, like I tried writing a commentary once, uh, I didn't get very far because uh, I'm not the kind of person who follows through on things. I'm really trying with this podcast, but, uh, you know, I'm not the kind of person who really get, goes and follows through. Uh, but one thing that frustrated me is like, how do I distinguish between like the times I'm trying to explain a word and the times I'm like trying to explain a larger narrative? And I try, you know, try to figure and you know try and you know larger lessons from it, um, and you know try to figure out a systematic thing. And I eventually came up with like you know having one commentary as like you know micro commentary, one is micro- macro commentary. Turns out that had been done ages before by the Rob Bog. He actually has three parts to his commentary. Uh, the first part is Bior Hamilot, which is, you know, explanation of words. Uh, it's basically like, you might need a definition for this word. Here's what it means. Uh, the second part, Bior Harparsha, uh, is a comprehensive commentary. Um, a, you know, tells you, he sums up what's going on in the story using the words of the of the Torah and adding, you know, things in, uh, like, parenthetical comments. Um, and he then, you know, will add, like, uh, you know, he'll have, like, essays or lectures um, on, th- on you know, broader, th- on, uh, you know, broader things that are going on in the story um, without uh, dividing it into the psukim. Uh, the third part, toalot, uh, which means, like, purposes, um, will explain, like, meanings, morals, and messages uh, that coming out of the, the, the Parsha. The Parsha is, like, the, the thing that he, uh, the, the word that he uses for a unit. Um, not just, you know, the thing that we read every week. Um, so he'll talk about metaphysical stuff, uh, moral, uh, metaphysical comments on the, uh, metaphysical lessons learnt out from the unit, moral things learnt out from the unit, and, you know, things that we learn out from the unit uh, in terms of mitzvot. Um, yeah, so the, um, one second... So he basically covers a lot of, you know, he basically has a multi-layered commentary, which, you know, I think is great. I think more commentary should have done that. Uh, he's definitely kind of, you know, very organized in that way. Um, and, uh, you know, like, I haven't learned that much Relbog, but I've noticed, like, you know, in Tanakh, where, like, he'll wrap up the end of a chapter by going, like, here are, the, like, the 17 things we learned from this chapter. Uh, and he'll number them, and he'll go through them. Um, so we're going to be dealing with the Ralbag as a rationalist commentator. So what did the medieval rationalists believe? Uh, they believed that uh, you know I'm when we got, have the you know who the heck is that guy in philosophy podcast. Uh, we're going to go a little bit more into this, but for our purposes, we'll note uh, the following: medieval rationalists uh, didn't like miracles so much. They believed that nature was a, you know, set in motion and that it was like a uh, machine. It was 
you know, preset machine and, uh, you know, any interference by God would also uh, falsify the fact that he's omnipotent because if he's omnipotent, then he should have planned everything out to begin with. Uh, so they didn't like miracles. Now, the Torah has miracles. And, uh, you know, the Rambam will say that, like, you know, we have to believe in miracles. He'll say, like, five different things about miracles. We'll get to that when we deal with the Rambam. But uh, basically, what these rationalist commentators are known mostly for doing is miracle minimization. They like to minimize the amount of miracles that are happening and minimize the amount of irrational things that are happening in the Chumash by explaining, uh, and we'll get to how they explain these away, uh, but they like to try and find naturalistic uh, ways of explaining the stories in the Torah that do as little violence to the laws of nature as possible. Uh, So we're going to look at uh, the kinds of things that the Rabbi has an issue with. Uh, So... uh, Rabbi Grossman, in his uh, article, does a very good job at like delineating the types of uh, the types of miracles, and a lot of it goes into like stuff in Chazal. I want to focus mostly on you know stuff in the text, so uh, we'll mention the stuff in Chazal, but I'll get in uh, you know midrash, and uh, but I'll get to that in a second. Um, there's stuff that the Ralbach doesn't like that are miracles that aren't strictly necessary. One famous example is uh, the sun standing still at Givon. Uh, in the Sefer Yoshua, uh, the book of Joshua, uh, there's an account of a battle where, you know, the sun is setting and, uh, you know, Joshua still hasn't defeated all the, uh, you know, the enemies and he asked God, could you keep the sun up there so we could, you know, make sure we get everyone and, uh, you know, the sun stays still in the sky, and uh, Joshua is able to wipe out all the enemies. Uh, the Ralbag does not like that very much, because uh, you stop the orbit of the sun, as he believed. Uh, then that means, like, the entire system of nature collapses. Like, what is this? Uh, other things that the Ralbag will have a problem with is uh, Billam and the talking donkey. Uh, donkeys don't talk. Why is there a talking donkey all of a sudden? Uh, you know, it's, you know, maybe it's a miracle, but like, you know, donkeys don't, we, maybe, you know, maybe it is a miracle, but we want to do as little damage to the laws of nature as possible. And a donkey talking is, you know, very damaging. We don't find any other stories of animals talking besides for voracious, which the Rabag does read as allegorical, which I think is correct anyway. Um, another story that the Rabag will have a problem with is, you know, Yaakov and the angel. Uh, what's his angel that's coming to fight with... Uh, what's his angel that's coming to fight with Yaakov? Now, the Rabag does believe in angels, but he believes in them as, like, you know, metaphysical sources... metaphysical forces that don't really have, like, physical reality. Uh, so what does it mean that Yaakov saw a man that was an angel that was wrestling with him? That's one thing he'll have an issue with. He'll also have an issue with, like, stuff that isn't explicitly a miracle... But stuff that seems irrational. For instance, uh, when you know Yaakov is there with you know all the wives, uh, you know Yaakov's getting married to Leah and then Rachel, and Rachel isn't having any children. 
uh, and also, you know, Avram is married to Sarah and uh, Sarai at the time, and she's not having any children. So in both cases, they give their maidservants to uh, to their husband to marry uh, as a way of them having, uh, you know, to solve the problem of them not having children. What does this mean? Now, that might mean something of like, you know, I will have children uh, through my maidservant, but Rabag is still bothered by that. Like, what is the connection between the two? Uh, he's also bothered by like, um, you know, the uh, the Torah says that uh, when you're taking a census, you can't count people. You can only count Shkullin because otherwise there'll be a plague. What's the connection between a census and a plague? Uh, is you know something that will bother the Rabag? Um, you know. Obviously, if he's bothered by stuff in the text, that's miraculous. He'll be definitely be bothered by stuff in Midrash, which is miraculous. And even stuff which is, you know, not necessarily miraculous, but stuff that is, you know, uh, irrational. Uh, for instance, there's a Midrash that talks about uh, when the Jews came down to Egypt, uh, Yocheved, who was Moshe's mother, was born uh, in, the gate, in between the walls while, uh, while they were going down to Egypt. That would make Yocheved... 130 at the time that she gave birth to Aaron, uh, which was Moshe's older brother. Uh, that's old. Um, I'm not sure if it's Aaron or Moshe. I, I should probably check that. But she gives birth at 130. That's old. Uh, and, you know, I've seen other commentaries put it as, like, if it was a miracle, then, like, why didn't the Torah talk about it? But he's bothered by that in the Chazal because it seems to have an irrational effect that, you know, a woman is giving birth at 130. So, uh, one of the things, and one of the things Rabbi Grossman does really well, and, you know, why I've split it up into, like, these problems, uh, and giving you all these problems without giving you solutions, so you're, like, at the edge of your seat right now, uh, is that he gives the types of solutions that the Ralbag will give. Um, so, he says that uh, the Ralbag doesn't typically use allegorization. In other words, like, this story is just an allegory. Why? Because, you know, the Ralbag has his limits. The Ralbag is going to say, like, these stories still happened. Uh, he's just not going to say that, you know, anything irrational happened while doing it. Um, yeah, he's for miracle minimization, and he's for, you know, making the narratives in the Torah uh, flow as naturalistic as possible. He's not in favor of, like, you know, oh, this story is just an allegory. What he will do, however, is say that the characters in the story were experiencing a prophetic vision. So he's not saying that the story itself is an allegory. He's saying that the people in the story were, you know, getting an allegorical vision from God. Uh, does that sound like a, you know, very small distinction? Kind of. But it preserves the historic, uh, historicity, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, of the text. Uh, the most famous example of this is Bilam and the donkey. Uh, you know, donkeys don't talk. Uh, Bilam was a prophet. So when he sees the donkey talking, uh, it's a vision. It's not. Uh, it's a prophetic vision. It's not the donkey actually talking. This actually does go on to explain a lot of other features of the story, uh, like why the people who are traveling with Bilam can't see the donkey talking to him. Uh, though I think there's a majority that say that they did, but um, you know that's a way he'll solve an issue. Donkeys don't talk. Fine. So Bilam was seeing the donkey in a vision. This will occasionally lead him to cool places. Uh, let's talk about the story of Yaakov and the angel. 
Um, and I'm going to read to you, you know, excerpts of the translation of what he says about Yaakov the angel. To refresh your memory, Yaakov is, uh, you know, preparing to fight against Esav. He's going to meet his brother Esav, who he hasn't seen since he stole the, the brachos, the blessings from him. And uh, Yaakov is, you know, worried about meeting up with Esav. He goes across the river to pick up some, to get some jars that he left across the Yabok River. And he's meet, he meets this angel and wrestles him, with him all the night. And then the next day he wakes up with like some sort of, uh, you know, uh, hip impingement of some sort. And that's why we don't eat the uh, sciatic nerve of, you know, the animals that we, uh, the animals that we eat. Okay, so here's how he interprets it. Uh, quote, And Yaakov arose on that night and transported his wives and children and made servants and all his possessions across the ford of the Yabok, after he first crossed himself to see the depth of the water, to test it, and to ascertain the point best suited for crossing. Okay, I, I don't know where he gets that uh, Yaakov, you know, first ascertained the depth of the water, unless he's just like very... I think is just being very thorough here. Like, of course, he was being rational, and before he waded into a river, he would make sure that he could actually cross it. I don't know. Yaakov remained alone to transport some of his possessions which remained there, and he slept there, and an angel of God appeared to him in a prophecy as though he were a man, and due to his great attachment to him and the closeness of a spiritual level to him, it seemed to him that he wrestled with him. In other words, there's an angel of God, which is a metaphysical force, and because Yaakov is in such a high level of prophecy, he's seeing it as if it were a person that he is actually making physical contact with and wrestling with. Uh, and Yaakov also saw this wrestling because the preoccupation of his imagination with the matter of Esav and his planning to devise stratagems to defeat him were he to rise against him to smite him, for they only show a man the thoughts of his heart. So this gets very interesting. It's going to get more interesting, but this is where it starts to get interesting. That... The reason why he perceived this angel to be a man is because he was preoccupied with dealing uh, with, you know, how he was going to defeat Asav, and, and thus this vision appeared to him as if he were wrestling with a man who might have looked like Asav. Uh, so the rabbi is saying something interesting that, like, the way that uh, the, what your mind is preoccupied on will affect the prophetic vision that you're getting. It's very interesting. It gets more interesting. Uh, and we, uh, he, I skipped a lot here, but uh, we're going to resume. Okay, quote. And we have decided that this wrestling was during Yaakov's sleep, for it is impossible for an angel of God to appear to a man in this manner when he is utilizing his corporeal faculties. And the Rav Hamor has already informed us that, that in many places, Rav Hamor being the Rambam, so Yaakov was asleep because you can't interact with angels while you're using your uh, regular senses. Uh, the mention of the prophecy occurring in a dream or vision has been omitted in reliance on the fact that every prophecy is of this character, and it therefore does not mention in this place that this prophecy was in a dream or vision. So it doesn't need to tell us that it was a dream or vision because all prophecy appears in a dream or vision, except for possibly that of Moshe. And if a doubter shall raise a doubt against us and say... How is it possible that this effect upon him he should, uh, should remain from this, that he was limping on his thigh when he awoke? So this is a very good question. If it was all just a vision, if it was all just, uh, you know, prophetic vision, how come Yaakov's limping when he wakes up? And it's like, you know, those, uh, uh, you know, I don't know uh, where I've seen a video like this, but like, you know, a person has like a bad dream and then they wake up and like, oh, there's bite marks on my neck from where the dog bit me. 
Uh, so, yeah, Yakov wakes up from the stream and he's limping. What's going on? Um, we say to him that we consider this possible for one of two causes. Very methodical, the Rabbach is. The first cause is that we see the influence of the faculties of the soul of the imagined notions that a man has during sleep. For these imagined ideas activate the faculties of the soul, some activation, and so we will see that a man will dream that he is you know, sleeping with a woman and he will see semen, as if this activity had actually occurred while awake. And so you will find that a person will dream that he is falling from a high place, and because of this, his limbs will move during his sleep, a strong and wondrous movement. And this is very clear from the sense. This is a very long run-on sentence. I apologize. I'm trying to find a place to pause. Okay. Basically, what he's saying is that, um, you know, you may experience things during your sleep. Uh, you know, your dreams may affect your physical actions that you're doing while you're asleep. He brings example uh, from, you know, the possibility of wet dreams. Um, be mature, people. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, brings an example of somebody who dreamt that they were falling from a great height and, you know, moved their limbs out, uh, moved their limbs in a way while they were sleeping. So it appeared that they were uh, so that they woke up with some sort of injury. Uh, for this cause, it is possible that when he saw in his dream that the socket of his hip was wrenched, a corresponding physical motion befell him so that there remained an effect in that place from the movement that had then befallen him. And it is therefore possible that it occurred that he found himself limping on his thigh when he awoke. So, the Rabbag is saying that just because the fact, just because he was limping, doesn't mean that it wasn't a prophetic dream. It just means that he may have injured himself while sleeping, uh, and that uh, because of you know, the fact that he was, you know, injured in the hip while he uh, while he was dreaming, he may have, you know, caused himself to be injured and then woke up. This is. A, very out there, uh, but it's fascinating the extent to which the Rabag is willing to naturalize this, you know, prophecy and make it make sense uh, within a naturalistic view of the world. Second opinion is, you know, also a bit wild, okay? And the second cause is that the imagination is sometimes aroused from events that affect a man during sleep, and the physicians therefore draw strong inferences on the nature of a sickness from the dreams of the sick one. For example, if the sleeper touches something cold, he will dream that he is in cold water. Where that snow or frost, that which is similar to this, has descended upon him. And if the sleeper shall touch something hot, he will dream that he is in a fire or that the sun is beating upon him. And that which is similar to this, and this is, and that which is similar to this. And this is something about which there is no doubt, for the senses testify to this. And for this cause you will find that when the excess of seed shall become strong in a man, and become aroused to leave, he will dream that he is sleeping with a woman, and from this exact cause, when, uh, so he's bringing, again, an example from Wet Dreams, where uh, it's not that you incurred some, it's not that you, as a result of your dream, incurred some physical, you know, uh, some physical thing, it's that some physical thing incurred that happening in your sleep. This is a little bit more radical, because it's saying that, like, the reason why, uh, we'll get to it, one, so one second. Uh, and from this exact cause, when a person develops some pain during sleep, he will dream that he has been struck in that place due to a quarrel that he had had with another man in his dream. And this type of phenomenon occurs frequently, according to the perception of our senses. And this being the case, it is possible that it befell Yaakov, due to the labor that he had labored in the transportation of all that was his across the river, that he had developed a pain in the socket of his hip during his sleep. And because of this, it appeared to him in his prophetic dream that he wrestled with the man and that he wrenched the socket of his hip when he wrestled with him. All right, so he's saying he might have hurt himself while transporting everything across the river, 
And then while he was sleeping, he dreamed that this angel, you know, dislocated his hip because that had already happened. That's very radical because that's claiming that, you know, an aspect of his prophecy and, you know, an aspect of his prophecy that has halakhic ramifications to this day, which is why, you know, I can't get a sirloin, uh, I can't get like sirloin steak, um, is because he was injured while it was happening. It's very radical. It shows you to the extent to which the Rabag is willing to naturalize even a prophetic vision. Um, so that's, you know, the first strategy that the Rabag will use. The next strategy the Rabag will use is reinterpretation. Uh, he'll, you know, go hyper-literal in some respects to interpret an event as not having occurred in a not-naturalistic fashion and, you know, explain the, the text so that it, you know, doesn't, you know, contradict science or, you know, logic. Uh, most of the famous example of this is, you know, what I told you before about the sun standing still at Givon. It doesn't make sense that, you know, the sun would stand still because that would throw everything in nature off, especially to an astronomer like the Rel Bagh. Uh, so the Rabag explains that the verses aren't describing uh, a change in the natural position of the sun. They're describing, you know, how successful the Jewish army was. Uh, you know, it defeated the enemy, it defeated the enemies in such a short amount of time that they, the, the, it's like the sun stood still in the sky because, you know, they had finished it before the evening set. Um, that's, you know, very creative, uh, the next Pasuk happens to be, uh, I quote, Neither before nor since has there ever been such a day when the Lord acted on words spoken by a man. So, I don't know. Uh, but, you know, we'll see. you see here again the lengths to which the Rabag is willing to reinterpret a, uh, you know, a Pasuk or uh, reinterpret, you know, a story to better align with a more naturalistic view of the universe. Uh, an example where it works better though not as clearly, not, you know, completely clearly, is the story of Lot's wife turning into a pillar of salt. Um, so, you know, we all know the story, I guess. Uh, you know, Lot is running from Sodom, and uh, they, say to the, uh, they say to everybody, like, don't look back. And Lot's wife is like, huh? And she looks back, she turns into a pillar of salt, and that's why we pay, you know, some Bedouin to take us out into the desert and point at a pillar of salt that looks vaguely like a woman. Um, the Ralbag and other commentaries, um, but the Ralbag most famously, will say that uh, if you look at the Pasuk, it says, um, you know, she turned back and it, and, uh, uh, and, you know, she or it became a pillar of salt. Um, the Rabag will claim that the wife didn't turn into a pillar of salt. The city did. She looked back. She saw that the city was like a pillar of salt. And because she looked back, she was overtaken by, you know, the, the fire and brimstone. And uh, she was overtaken by the fire and brimstone and then died. Um, and that's why we don't see Lo's wife anymore. Um, it's, you know, not the most convincing shot in the world, but it does preserve the Ralbag's naturalistic 
attitude towards the text. In fact, he says so explicitly. Uh, quote, and we have also not agreed that the phrase, and she thereupon turned into a pillar of salt, refers to Lot's wife, for God, may, may he be elevated, does not perform miracles except for the benefit that people should fear his presence. And there was no one there to see this miracle. And it therefore appears to us that the phrase, and she thereupon turned into a pillar of salt, refers to the land of Sodom and Gomorrah, for with the overturning of that place, brimstone and salt appeared there, and it was therefore like a pillar of salt. So he says explicitly, like, uh, I don't see why there needed to be a miracle here. Miracles are to prove to people that God exists. And there was no one here that was going to uh, prove to, like, the masses that God exists. And there was no one here that was, uh, you know, going to be proved that God existed, uh, that, you know, uh, should that people should f fear his presence. So I don't see why you have to have a miracle here. So I will interpret this in the most naturalistic way possible. Um, you know, he'll... And the next strategy that the Rabbah would sometimes use is rejection. Um, he will reject Chazal's more fantastical and less naturalistic interpretation of verses. Um, but he will always insist that the view he's rejecting is not the consensus view of Chazal, even when it actually is. And he will cite sources to support his opinion that, uh, you know, it's not really the intent of the verse to teach us some sort of uh, non-naturalistic miracle. It's, you know, these sources prove that it is meant to be read in a naturalistic uh, fashion. Um, which, again, uh, as I was saying before, like, expecting religious people to reject things in the text that, don't, that contradict with truth is n not quite understanding how this works. We never quite reject things. We work to find ways to prove the supposition that we are making. Uh, the Ralbag didn't just say, like, I'll just re reject this Chazal, and, like, I'll get away with it. And, you know, if you don't like it, screw you. No, he tried to, you know, he put the work in to try and prove how his view is not, uh, you know, a deviation from the text. Uh, so, you know, when you're asking religious people to reject something... Uh, we don't reject as much as we, you know, reinterpret or emphasize other texts. And I think that's just an important thing to say. Um, one way that he'll read Chazal sometimes is he'll say that, you know, when Chazal read this, uh, were making this, you know, irrational read of the Pasuk, they were saying so uh, not, you know, to tell you what happened, but to teach you a didactic lesson. Um, the story, what I mentioned before about Yochavet being bo uh, born between the walls, thus making her 130 when she gave birth, uh, the Rabag will say that that medrash about her being born between the walls is not to say that she was actually like born between the walls because then she'd be 130 when she was giving birth. That makes no sense. Rather, it's saying that. Uh, you know, he's teaching us a lesson about, like, you know, uh, already at the beginning uh, of, you know, our our exile, the, save, the you know, eventual savior was already, like, there. Uh, I don't remember what exactly he got out of that one, but uh, he'll tell you that, like, it's not to tell you a, you know, historical truth or narrative truth, it's to tell you, like, a didactic truth, um, which, you know, seems very rational to us today, but it is a radical position to say that, you know, Chazal uh, willingly said something untrue uh, that would be taken as, you know, narrative truth, 
but only to teach us something uh, that uh, only to teach. And he'll also say that, like, it's to teach the masses or to give the masses a lesson. So there is, like, uh, a sense in the real bag that he's, like, saying that, like, it's good that the masses believe this. But between you and me, we, uh, we both know that this is not historical truth. Um, which is a little bit in line with, like, what I mentioned before, Maimonidean esotericism. But uh, the real bag is a lot less shy than the Rambam. He's a lot less, uh, you know, if they had the same views, which I think is historically debatable, uh, and if, you know, the Rambam's uh, Aristotelianism was as, you know, extreme as the uh, Ralbach's, he certainly did a better way of hiding it, uh, did a better job of hiding it. And uh, one thing that the Ralbach, I think, uh, it should be mentioned about him is that his uh, rationalistic... Uh, naturalistic approach to the text will lead him to very weird uh, original interpretations. Um, let's start with... Uh, l- l- I'm going to show you two uh, very original, very weird uh, interpretations of uh, you know non-ra- non-rational, non-naturalistic things in the text that... Uh, they're sort of funny in a way. Uh, they are lightly misogynistic, uh, just a fair warning. Uh, and I think that should also go as a lesson to anybody who tells you that, like, oh, if we only just got rid of all the Medrash and all the Kabbalah and everything and, you know, just stuck with the rationalists like the uh, like the Ralbag and the Rambam, we can get rid of all the misogyny and uh, and all the, you know, sexist stuff in, in, uh, in Jewish tradition. No, it's not that simple. It's just not. It like it's there. I, I continually am skeptical of people who say that like the magical solution to getting rid of you know the things we don't like about Judaism is to like you know embrace this philosophy wholeheartedly. Like the the text never fit into a box. Uh, like you know the things you're saying like never fit into one category. They never fit into a box. You're shoving Judaism into one box and to, you know, get rid of this, you know, massive amounts of text and, like, people who honestly slaved over, uh, you know, their legitimate insights into Judaism uh, strikes me as just intellectually dishonest. But that's a tangent. Anyway, let's get to the very weird uh, original interpretations. We mentioned before the... Uh, story of you know the maidservants and infertility. Avram giving uh, Avram and Sarai being married, and Sarai giving her Hagar uh, when she when Sarai couldn't have children, and uh, Yaakov being married to Rachel, and Rachel giving her Bilha because you know uh, she wasn't having children. The Rabbag asks like, what's the connection between those two? Uh, why uh, like why is giving your maidservant to your husband uh, you know some sort of segula for a pregnancy? That doesn't make any sense. Here's this very weird interpretation that the robot comes up with. Um, <clears throat> Apparently, the intention was to reverse her biological temperament in such a way that consumption would be possible for her. For you already know that corpulence and fleshiness is a cause for the diminution of seed. And if conception was being prevented uh, from Rachel, Sarah and Rachel for this cause, it would then be possible for them to gain benefit from this. For women who are the wives of the same man are necessarily uh, sarot, or rivals to each other, and it occurs from this wondrous pain to them 
Uh, wondrous is a weird word to use. Uh, okay. Uh, when their maidservants say something against them, along with the fact that they suffer more when they say something against them since they are their maidservants. And the strong effect that they experience from this will perhaps be cause for the reduction of the corpulence of fleshiness that was the cause of the prevention of conception by her, along with the fact that this would also yield a benefit to establish issue for their husbands, were it to be that they were unfit for conception, and they therefore chose this method of painting themselves over other things that they may have suffered from. This is what currently appears to me in this. Let me translate. Uh, here's the real bug. Uh, being fat prevents you from being able to conceive a child. Uh, this we know from, this we know for science reasons. Uh, now, the reason why they gave the maidservants over was uh, because they, uh, if your husband marries your maidservant and then your maidservant is mean to you and you see your husband like, you know, with your maidservant, uh, then you're going to become upset about that and it's going to pain you and then you're not going to eat and then you're going to come thin and be able to uh, conceive again. Again, I said this was lightly misogynistic. These views are not endorsed by current scientific practice or, uh, or by me personally. Um, yeah, that's, uh, you know, not necessarily the most progressive of opinions. Though I did, uh, when I did, you know, post this on my uh, timeline, somebody did point out that PCOS uh, having correlation with obesity might be what might have prompted this, maybe, but the idea, like, it's the idea that they would then uh, deliberately torture themselves to then, uh, you know, become thin again so that they could conceive is just wacky and out there. Um, if you were so inclined, you could make uh, you could make the Rabag out to be a good guy by saying that, like, the Rabag is keenly aware of the effects of toxic, uh, you know, masculine, uh, you know, toxic gender stereotypes and is saying that the, uh, the, the wives of, you know, the Avos were, you know, uh, pained by these, you know, toxic gender roles that they were placed into. Uh, I could buy that. I could. I don't think that's what he meant, but I think that, you know, you could go that way with it. Uh, but it's, it's a very weird and very original interpretation may have been prompted also by the fact that Ral Bog was a doctor, but this is his way of like making this naturalistic. Of course he's, you know, and he didn't end up ignoring what may be the obvious shot of like, you know, they're saying you can't have children through me. Uh, you know, I would, you know, I'll give you my maidservant so that you can have children. Uh, it doesn't, uh, you know completely discount that, but he does say that, like, uh, the main thing was to torture themselves. Uh, it's weird. Whatever. Okay, the other thing that I wanted to talk about is his views on the census. Um, and this will go to show you that just because they were uh, trying to make it make scientific sense in the, you know, uh, 13th and 14th century, by no means means that, like, they were right or that this has held up. Um, so the census, we said before, it says that if you count B'nai Israel by, uh, you know, just counting them instead of, like, counting through uh, uh, giving coins, then uh, a plague will happen. The rabbi is like, plague? What do you mean? Uh, here's what he says. Uh, 
We find that the counting of men is a cause of plague, and that which is mentioned in the matter of David when he commanded the general of the army, Yoav, to count Israel. Uh, okay, that's a different story in Tanakh where there actually was a plague. We do not know exactly what is the cause of this. And it seems that this matter relates to the matter of the evil eye. And the cause of the damage which is found in it, according to what I think, is that certain excess vapors which nature expels from the body leave through the eye, to the extent that the philosopher has related that a new mirror, if a woman shall gaze into it during her period, there shall appear in it a bloodstain whose mark shall remain there for a perceptible period of time, and these vapors can possibly kill some people because they are poisonous to them and due to the ease of their becoming affected by them. And this is, according to what I think, the cause of the plague that is a consequence of the census, and therefore, some of the counted men will die as opposed to others due to a difference of nature between the recipients who are affected by this. And it is clear that the eye is the limb that is most damaged from this poisonous gaze, and the damage comes via, uh, via it to the brain due to its proximity to it. And for this cause, you will find that they were not concerned if the items were counted were parts of people, e.g. their fingers, for it is not the nature of those limbs to be damaged by this action. The first benefit is to remove, i.e. avoid, the consequences of a census to the counted man, and God may he be elevated. Therefore commanded Moshe that when he counts them in his first counting, each man should give the redemption of his soul to guard them from the plague. Um, as a, so, first of all, uh, as I said before, uh, lightly misogynistic, uh, says a little bit, uh, you know, if a woman with a period gazes into a mirror, there will be a blood stain, and they, you know, emit poisonous vapors from their eyes that may kill. Um... Yeah, again, just because they were going by the science of their day does not mean that that has held up in any way. Uh, it also, you know, caused me a lot to question. Uh, there was, you know, a lot of medieval science is just people just saying things and not testing them. And, uh, you know, it's like the famous case of, uh, you, know, uh, you know, we know much of what we know from anatomy because... Uh, one student at a at a medical school in the medieval uh, early modern period was like, uh, let me see if any of this like makes sense if I actually take apart a body and look at it. And he was like, no, none of this is. Uh, there's also stuff like you know, women have more uh, women have less teeth than men. Uh, somebody could have just checked. Um, so you know, medieval science had its uh, drawbacks and had its blind spots, but uh, you know. They certainly were working within a scientific, some sort of scientific view of the universe, and they were definitely trying to uh, lessen uh, non-naturalistic events in Tanakh. Um, and you know, as I don't want to be giving you these weird opinions just to like, look, the Ralbag is weird. Science was weird back then. Uh, that's like five percent of it. Uh, but also, we'll show you that his. He's willing to think way out of the box to align the psukim within his naturalistic view of the universe. Um, so let's you know wrap this up a little bit by going back to our you know criteria for uh, textual commentaries. Okay, um, our first criteria was textual independence versus traditional text. The degree to which a given commentator sees the biblical text as an independent work or one that can only be understood in the context of the oral tradition. He's very independent, about as far as you can go, independent. Um, in uh, other places, he's uh, similar to Rushbaum, he holds that derived halacha is uh, uh, esmachta, which is, you know, um, you know, in other words, it's uh, the source of the obligation is the oral tradition, 
uh, not the biblical text. He actually he actually thinks that uh, the reason why Chazal tied it to the biblical text was as a uh, key for memory was as like a tool for memorization rather than like it's actually coming from the biblical text, um, which may actually be more radical than the Rashbam. And those who want to muck around with what this may mean for biblical criticism, go right ahead. Um, literal meaning versus symbolic meaning. The degree to which a given commentator sees the text as being meant to be understood on a literal level versus being understood as representing something beyond the text, such as cabalistic or philosophical ideas, or as a response to current events or political issues. Uh, this is a bit tricky because in some ways, the Ralbag is uh, very literal, almost hyper-literal. Um, he'll, uh, one instance that Rabbi Grossman brings down is for the uh, story of the Tower of Babel. Uh, he'll insist that because the story doesn't say that a sin was committed, even though, you know, God comes down and confuses all their languages, uh, there's no sin being committed. It wasn't a punishment. And, you know, God was just, you know, uh, uh, you know, confusing the languages because that's what he thought was necessary. Um, but... He does see the text as representing philosophical moral ideas. Remember, the third you know, part of his structure is like telling you what the you know, moral and philosophical and you know, uh, mitzvah ideas are, are from that. And he definitely sees it you know, constrained by his naturalistic view of the universe. Like, this has to make sense within my naturalistic sense of the universe. Uh, which will bring us to number three. Rational reinterpretation versus unmediated text. The degree to which a given commentator is willing to interpret text to better align with rational principles as opposed to leaving the problematic parts unchanged. Uh, he is about as far as you can go towards rational. Uh, I picked him for that reason. He is about as far as you can go towards rational. Um, are there commentaries that will, like, naturalize, uh, say, um, you know, uh, the ten plagues? Um or Solagic does, but uh, I don't know of any offhand. Uh, if people want to point me to one, then, you know, we could have a podcast about that one. But uh, in terms of the medieval commentaries, he's about as far as you can go uh, and uh, and get away with it. And the Rabag barely got away with it, uh, which we'll go into a little later. Um, linguistic omnisignificance versus lingui linguistic contextualism. The degree to which a given biblical commentator is inclined to see every word as worthy of interpretation versus allowing words to be understood in context of natural speech, especially relevant for poetry. I'll admit I don't have enough data on this. I suspect more, more towards the latter because he's a Pashtun. Uh, he is a you know uh, commentator who is uh, literal. He's influenced by the Ibn Ezra, who is very much more towards linguistic contextualism. Um, if people want to point me in the other direction, uh, go to the comments, point me out uh, to it. Um, I'll admit that I'm not, you know, an expert in the real bug. One of the reasons why this podcast was, uh, this episode of the podcast was so long in coming was because I was intimidated by the fact that I was not an expert in the real bug. Um, but uh, I don't have enough data on that. Uh, if people want to point me to either direction, that's fine. Uh, on the page versus by the book, the degree to which a given biblical commentator interprets what's in front of them in isolation uh, versus in terms of the entirety of the scripture. Uh, so his, the structure of his commentary sort of allows him to do both. 
Uh, he's very much, you know, uh, the Beer Hamilo and, you know, Beer Parchio uh, sections are, you know, very much on the page, but in his, you know, macro section, he's allowed to, you know, talk about macro themes and talk about, like, other stuff in scripture. Um, so that wraps up, like, you know, what the criteria, what the Relbog's program is. We talked about, like, some of the key identifying features of the Relbog. Um, a lot of people after the Relbog do not like him very much. Uh, you know, a bunch of different commentators that come after him are like, uh, the Relbog is, is terrible. Don't, don't use him. Um, mostly having to do with the fact that he took you know, uh, the Aristotelianism and naturalistic views very, very far, and he was not at all shy about it. Um, and uh, there's a lot, and we may have another episode on him in terms of his philosophy, because that's, you know, a whole other, uh, uh, you know, can of worms. Uh, but, you know, he's presented as like, you know, uh, a Jewish, uh, Jew, a great Talmudist who was uh, led astray by philosophy, uh, to a greater extent even than the Rambam is, because the Rambam, at least, like we have those, like you know, uh, monumental halachic works that, like, sort of like, if you got a problem with me, you know, deal with it. Uh, the Ralbag, even though apparently he was a great halachist and described as contempor- by contemporaries as such, does not have that. Um, but I do want to conclude. Uh, as I like to do, uh, by talking a little bit about what we can learn from the Rollbox program. I think there's something to be said for someone attempting to honestly trying to reconcile truth with his religion. The Rollbox could have very easily gone, well, this is irreconcilable, and I believe this, you know, Aristotelian stuff is true, so, like, I guess the Jewish stuff isn't. But he didn't do that. Uh, his opinions are way out there. Uh, some may not even be acceptable in current Jewish communities. Uh, and he never gave up on Judaism or the Jewish people. Uh, his truth guided him to places that people before or since did not go. But he was like, I could, I could reconcile this. Some may view that as a cautionary tale, and I think there's some truth to that. Uh, I think there's, you know, some things that the Ralbag uh, did that, you know, do damage to some of the main theological uh, main theological program of what I believe Judaism to be. Uh, you know, I think there's, you know, place for miracles and, uh, you know, place for the idea that God controls all. Um, and I think the Rabag may have done, you know, damage to those ideas. However, uh, the way I see it, he was motivated to do this not out of a desire to change Judaism, out of a sincere belief in it, as we said before about charitable reading, it's not that he said, like, I must change the Torah so that it aligns with my philosophy. It's, it was more, it must be that the Torah means this because it can't be the other way, because I know this stuff is true, and the Torah cannot tell me things that are untrue. In this podcast, we do a lot of complaining about be, people being forced into boxes by external forces. We do a lot of talking about, like, you know, the misfits and how people try to shove the misfits into boxes and that they shouldn't do that. And, you know, we're going to keep doing that. We're going to keep harping on that. Uh, Those boxes are sometimes self-inflicted. Sometimes they're like, no, 
if I believe this, I'm officially out of the picture. I, you know, I cannot believe this and also be Jewish. I'm officially out of the picture once I believe this, and I, I, I can't, you know, get out of this belief that this is true. Therefore, like, I'm no longer Jewish. Uh, you know, sometimes that's true. Sometimes, to quote, you know, Tavia from Fiddler on the Roof, there is no other hand. Uh, but sometimes I think we do need to take a page of the Rob Boggs book and say, no, I, I, I can be Jewish and believe this, and I refuse to give up on that. And I just have to put in the work to justify it. The Rob Bog didn't just say, like, you know, I don't know, maybe they reconcile, I don't know. It was like, no, I'm going to, you know, try to figure out how I could fit this in. And, you know, there was likely points that he came across something and was like, no, I can't reconcile this. A lot less than Rambam, but, or at least, you know, the picture of the Rambam that he himself presented. But, you know, the Ralbag put in the work to try and figure out where the truth lay. Uh, And I encourage all of you to, when you're faced with a question of something you believe to be true and something that is in your religion, put in the work to try and figure out where, you know, where the truth lies and where I could figure out, where I could, you know, charitably read the text, either, you know, uh, accepting that truth or rejecting it or whatever. Um, and, you know, there's value also, I think, to living with that tension, but I think the Rabag says, like, you don't get to give up so easily. Put in the put in the work. Try to figure it out. And uh, yeah, just you know, don't give up. Do do the work. The next podcast will be on uh, mystical approaches, uh, most notably the Zohar. Uh, this one will be based primarily on a paper that I did, uh, so it will be uh, hopefully much less time uh, to prepare than this one was, which was like a couple of months. And uh, I hope to hear, uh, uh, you know, positive things about this podcast. Uh, please, you know, uh, review us, subscribe. Uh, and, you know, if you could contribute to the Patreon uh, to, you know, help me uh, keep doing this, uh, that would be you know, very much appreciated. All right, and I uh, hope you have uh, you know, a great day and stuff. Is that going to be my tag offline from now on? I don't know. Questions or comments on this podcast? Be sure to go to the Facebook page and get involved in the discussion there. Or better yet, get involved in the discussion and also donate to our Patreon. We're not greedy. We just need the money.